Amen. Good morning. All right, not going to lie, that was awesome. I needed that, man. That was really, really good for the soul. Uh, Before I jump into the message this morning, I just want to rehearse some of the things that we do here at the church that we make available to folks, because I know that every week we have new people joining us online and new people join us here, which is fun, and it's good to see you guys and to get to meet you even through a mask, although I'm going to be confused about who you are until the masks are gone. But it's great to have you. But you might be wondering, all right, how do I grow at this church? And I just want to lay out some of the things that we have for you to do that, okay? And the first of which is personal worship. And so if you don't know what that is, go get our free phone app, sign up for personal worship, just let the notifications come through day after day. And what we do as a church is we take what we're going to talk about on Sunday, like what we're going to do today, and we divide it up into five days, Monday through Friday. We add supplemental scripture passages that are related to whatever it is that you're looking at day by day. We give you two study questions a day at least that you can interact with. We give you a model prayer. Like if you are just starting out spiritually and you're like, man, I don't even know how to pray. Okay, well, you've got a model prayer. Pray that. And in praying these prayers, that will help form and shape your prayer life. And before you know it, you're going to go, I think I, I, think I got this one. Like, I, I know what I'm going to do here. I know how I'm going to do this because I've seen it done and I've practiced it. I've done that before the Lord. So that's a huge thing. Corporate worship, what in the world is that? It's this. It's what you're doing at home and it's what we're doing here. It is making a commitment to Sunday mornings. Now, the Bible, not Tom, comes to us and says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why? Because it's a big deal. It is a big deal to come together in the presence of the Lord, to sing the praise of the Lord, to, as a group of people, place ourselves beneath the word of the Lord and to say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. It's a big deal. And so thank you for committing to that today. Uh, Thank you out there for committing to it, and please just commit to it on a regular basis. And by the way, I'm going to say this to the online audience. I know a bunch of you out there need to stay out there. I get that 100%. I do. But for those of you who are able to come back, it is different. It is different. You're not dealing with your kids. Somebody else is taking care of it. You're not dealing with a dog. She's home by herself with a bone or something. You're not making breakfast because you've pre-committed, you've gotten up, you've made the breakfast, you've made the effort, you've come here, you've focused, you've dialed in, and you get to do what I just got to do a minute ago. When that music quieted down in the last stanza, I could hear people all over this room singing. It's beautiful. Every week I have people who have come back for the first time or maybe the second time and I just haven't talked to them yet, and they'll come to me and go, Tom, I forgot what this was like. Well, we're here, and we would love to have you if you can do that. So please know that. All right, the next thing that I would say is join a group. So what do you do in the group? Well, you get to do life with other believers in Christ. We are a communal people. The Christian community is not a bunch of solo artists. We're we're a group. We're a band. We're a choir. We're a team. And that's the way we're meant to live this life. And so you come together, you do your personal worship. We talk about it on Sunday. You come together, and in most of these groups, what you end up doing is talking about what it is that you've discovered as you've worked through the passage or questions that maybe you have as you've worked through it and maybe what it is that struck you on Sunday morning. It could have been a song. It could have been a prayer. It could have been part of the message or some other piece entirely. What is God saying to you? You're sharing, how can you pray for me? I need your help. I need for the Spirit of the Lord to enliven me, to help me, to strengthen me, hear what my struggles are. You've got a group of people committed to praying for you just as you commit to pray for them. And the last thing that I'll point out that there are other things is our podcast that comes out on the next Thursday. So personal worship Monday through Friday, Sunday church, community group. On Thursday, 
We've got a phenomenal podcast. It's taught by Sam Smith, who was up here a little while ago. Super brilliant person. Uh, he also does that with Mark Lautenschlager, one of our elders, also very brilliant. These guys do all kinds of research on this same passage of Scripture. They do all your work for you, and then very creatively and in an entertaining fashion even, they're fun, they're friends, they bring you a depth of knowledge and understanding that you're just, it's going to be tough to replicate on your own. So I would encourage you to take advantage of that. Where does faith come from? Because the Bible tells us it comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. This is a great opportunity for you to deepen your faith and your understanding of the Bible. Okay? So I know I get up here and I say that a lot. But again, we have people who join us all the time. And and I want them to understand this is what to do. It's all on the app. It's all on the website. So take advantage of that if you're not doing that already. Okay? All right, so as we continue today with our study of the book of 1 Kings, we come today to 1 Kings chapter 10, which, as I said last week, is kind of a package deal with 1 Kings chapter 9, and these two chapters together mark a turning point in the life of Solomon. It is the point in which, in his heart, he shifts from total trust in God, frankly, to total trust in the same things that all the other kings of the earth and all the kings around him trusted in. Like what? Like horses. Okay, why would you trust in horses? Because horses in that day made you mighty in war. That's why. They pulled your chariots. They, they enabled your cavalry to go out and slaughter the infantry. You get the idea? Horses were a big deal. So every wise king everywhere collected horses, except, of course, the king of Israel, who was commanded by God not to collect horses. And yet, as we saw, collected horses nonetheless. Why would God say don't collect horses? He's saying, look, you don't need horses. You don't need chariots. You don't need what all of the kings of the world need. Why? Because you have me. And here's what I know. If you collect horses, the gravitational pull of your heart, you are going to be tempted, that's our key word for the day, to trust in them. And I want to remove that from you. I don't tempt you. I try to preserve you from that. The kings of Solomon's day accumulated wealth. They amassed great, great wealth. Why would they do that? For the same reason. It's not just comfort. It's not just enjoyment. It's, oh, so I can travel. No, no. If I have wealth, I have a standing army. If I have wealth, I can hire mercenaries. If I have wealth, I can pay off my enemies. If I have wealth, I can buy horses and chariots. If I have wealth, I can, I can, I can, I can. I can safeguard and secure my nation, my people, and frankly, my own self. You get the idea? So wise kings accumulated wealth, except, of course, for Solomon, because he was commanded not to do that, lest he be, what? Tempted. There it is again. To trust not in the Lord his God, his safety, his security, his treasure, but in this other stuff. And yet, as we've seen in both of these chapters, he amassed outrageous wealth, unthinkable wealth. Like we don't have a category for this kind of wealth. Incredible. Political alliances, they all did it. They would make political alliances with all of the nations surrounding them, or at least all of the ones who would enter into political alliances with them. Why? Because they want to be safe from these guys. They want to have trade with these guys. And they would secure these alliances by marrying one of the daughters of one of the foreign kings. So, you know, I mean, you don't want to, your father-in-law doesn't want to attack his son-in-law and his daughter. Your father-in-law wants his son-in-law and daughter to be prosperous. It was one way to secure the validity and, and, the, and, and the, the veracity of these particular treaties. Solomon's not supposed to marry any foreign women. He's an Israelite. As we'll talk about next week, he marries them by the scores. And they finish him off. 
It's what draws his heart completely, fully, totally away from God and into the straight-up abject worship of the gods of the other nations of his wives. It's a turning point, and it's honestly a little terrifying. Now, why is it terrifying? Because if you've been with us on the journey of Solomon's life in this study, man, this guy is unique. I mean, he's had all these experiences that I for sure have not had. He's had all these honors from God that I for sure also have not had. So, for example, God has personally appeared to Solomon not once, but two times. Okay, I have experienced the presence of God and do experience his presence. I believe I hear the voice of the Lord coming to me in his word primarily, but even in nudgings and urges of my heart. Like, it's not like I'm devoid of experience in terms of God, but God hasn't shown up at my office door and and knocked and, you know, kind of, do you have a second, you know? I'm in the middle of an email. Give me about 20 minutes, you know, like, He hasn't shown up like that, not once, but twice with Solomon. Solomon is given the high honor of constructing the temple of God. Even his father, David, do you know anything about him? Was not given that honor. That was Solomon's honor. It's remarkable. Solomon wrote not one, not two, but three books of the Bible. And then we got all this whole piece of 1 Kings is about him. And then a whole part of 2 Chronicles is about him. How many words of the Bible have you written? I, like I've got zero count going in my favor. Like if I had a word, I'd just go Jesus. That's it. It's what the Bible is all about. But like I don't. And, and none of the Bible directly is chronicling any of the events of my life. So when we watch this truly great man fall, here's the tendency in my heart and in yours. It's to go, well, I guess I'm doomed. You know, like, good grief. I have no shot. It's not true. It's the wrong reaction. The spirit of the living God who spoke the universe into being, if you're a Christian, lives in you. He's lost none of his potency. That's not insignificant. You know, we are not called as Christians to lay down in defeat before sin and temptation as if we have no power by which to fight and defeat it. It's not true. But I do think these stories should sober us. In other words, I think we should read these stories, and they're all over the Bible. Like, every biblical character is flawed except for Jesus. That's why they're all pointing to him. They all leave you longing for somebody who isn't, frankly, like them. You get the idea? But what we ought to do is read stories like this and go, okay, this should sober me because here's the deal. If this could happen to Solomon, and it it for sure could happen to me, and and here's the thing, for the sake of God, for the sake of the church, for the sake of my family, for the sake of my friends, for the sake of my own self, like I don't want this to happen to me. So how does this happen? How did it happen to Solomon? How does it happen to us? And so that's what I want to look at the anatomy of today. And to do that, I want to go to James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, where James, the brother of Jesus, comes to us and he says this. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Okay, I started with this verse because every trial is a temptation and that it introduces temptations and every temptation is a trial. So why is every trial a temptation? Because every time that we're under fire, every time that we're in pain, every time that life disappoints or confuses or hurts us, whenever things do not go the way that we wanted them to, and maybe it's in our lives, or maybe it's in the world around us, or maybe it's both, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to doubt the Lord. I mean, like at some point, do you exist? You know, like how can you put up with this? Like we doubt him, his existence, his goodness, his purposes, his wisdom, 
His presence, like is he actually with me? His love, does he care? Does he see? Does he know? We're tempted to grow resentful toward God because we're in pain and we're super irritated about it and we don't understand why he doesn't lift this and take it away because you know, we believe that he can, right? Bitter? I think we're tempted to pride in those moments. You know, pridefully, we kind of go, well, you know, I'll tell you what. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I think I know better than you do, God. I mean, if I can just be super honest, or maybe what I'm saying is I am better than you because I would not allow this. Oh, man. Sorry, but that's ugly, and we all get there at times. Every trial brings temptations, but every temptation is a trial. Why? Because it's just hard. Trials are powerful. Temptations are powerful. And they're trying. They test us. James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test by the power of the Spirit of the Lord within him, of that trial or temptation, of what it produces in his life, he will receive the crown of life, the idea being in the world to come. And so we live this life, which feels like a long life to us, doesn't it? It's nothing compared to eternity. He's saying, no, no, no. In eternity... He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised. And then here comes the key. Who gets it? To those who love him. So then what do trials and temptations test fundamentally? Because it's not our resolve. It's not our grit. It's not our determination. It's not our own personal strength. It's not us rising up and going, just say no, you know, like that works. I mean, it might work for a day or a week or a month, but that's about it. What trials and temptations test fundamentally is who or what we love most. It's our love for God. You know, I've shared this in the past, but Augustine, who was a genius, was brilliant, one of the greatest theologians of the Christian church, maybe the greatest, some would say. He defined sin. He said, sin is disordered love. It is loving things in the wrong order. In other words, he's coming to me and he's coming to you and we all do this, okay? And he's saying, when you give way to temptation and enter into sin, here's what you're saying in that moment. You're saying, this thing, this person, this experience, what they can do for me, how they make me feel, whatever the case may be, what they represent, this is something that I love more than God in this moment or maybe in this whole season of my life. Tests our loves. Martin Luther came to us and he said, all right, so here's the deal. Love God, you ready? And then do whatever you please. What is he saying? I mean, that sounds crazy. Okay, so if I love God, I can murder people, you know, (laughs) because occasionally in traffic. Yes, thank you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying love God and do whatever you please because what you are pleased then to do is different because of your love for God. I'll give you an example. Okay, so I take Mondays off. The last two Mondays, and I'm not looking for a pat on the back here, except maybe from my wife, but for the last two Mondays, I have done yard work. Ask me if I like to do yard work. I don't. I hate yard work. I'm sorry. I know I just offended half of you. Most most of you wish you had more yard to do, and I have more yard for you to do, okay? (laughs) So just come on by. My wife would love it. But she's been wanting to get something done in the backyard, and it was not a small something. It was at least two full days of get it done for a while now. And eventually, my love for her made me want to do what I would never otherwise choose to do, which is yard work. 
it pleased me to do yard work because I knew that would be pleasing to her. And pleasing her was the point. (laughs) Motivated by what? Love for her. Love God, do whatever you please, Luther says. So on a very practical basis then, when it comes to sin, when it comes to temptation, when it comes to you know, obedience to God or disobedience to God, where should our focus be? Because it shouldn't be on the behavior itself. Oh, I'm just going to stop doing this until next weekend. You know, like, no. It should be on the place in us from which the behavior comes. The words come out of here. The attitudes come out of here. The conduct comes out of here. It should be on our heart. And specifically, it should be on who or what we love. And so James comes to us and he's like, all right, so now that we've established that, let me give you the anatomy of sin and temptation. Here we go. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil. And therefore, God himself tempts no one with evil. He's going, look, it's, it's simple math. So here's the deal. God's heart does not move toward evil. It cannot move toward evil. Why would God move your heart toward evil? He wouldn't. So that's not where it comes from. Where does it come from? Right here. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And where do those desires live? Because it's not in the mind. It's not. That's why the most intelligent people do some of the stupidest things. They're overrun by their passion. Their mind is jumping up and down and going, you know how this is going to end, right? Like, you're going to wake up tomorrow and go, disaster. Let me spell out for you exactly what's going to happen, you know, tomorrow. Like, this is what's going to happen if you do this. And they're just running right by their mind, by every reasonable thought that they might otherwise have. They're like, la, 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 la. They don't care in that moment. Later they care, but not then. It's all about the heart. The passions are in the heart. The desires are in the heart. The focus is on the heart. He's like, oh, let me explain it. So it's, it's, it's simple. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then what happens? Then that desire, when it is conceived, it's sexual language. Please don't miss that. He's like, let me grab, okay, let me think. Like the most powerful temptation I can use. So as an example, this. Everybody gets this. That desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And by the way, desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to desire having a good job with great benefits and good pay in a nice city and, you know, to enjoy all of the benefits of that, like all of the good things that come from it. It's not a bad thing to desire romantic love, to have somebody to share your life with and enjoy things with. I mean, that's awesome. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Not a bad thing. It's when that job or that person displaces God at the top of the love order. All right, now it becomes a problem. You're like, how do I know if that happens? You know it, if you would say something like this, if I didn't have that job or if I didn't have that person, no matter what else I have, God, whatever, I will not be happy. Okay, there you go. Why? Because I'm looking for my value and my affirmation and my self-worth and maybe my safety and my security and all of these things that only God can give by design to me. I'm trying to find it 
and this person. So if I don't have that person or if I don't have that job or if I don't have that thing or if this isn't happening for me anymore, I'm lost. I'm done. It's when you get to that level that sin is conceived and given birth to in you and then it grows and it becomes death. You're like, how does it become death? Well, let me think about it for a minute. When you lose that job, if that's your God, you don't just lose the job. You lose yourself. That's where you had your self-value. That's where you were getting all your kudos. That's where all your affirmation was coming. That's what your purpose in life was. That's why you mattered, and now it's over, and you don't matter. Devastation. Same with the person. It brings death, and the reality is that you will lose that job at some point. I mean, every one of us is mortal. You know, you will lose that person at some point. I mean, either the relationship will rupture on its own and that'll be it, or one of you will die. Like, it's, it's really that simple. It's going to happen, which is why Jesus comes to us and says, let me play this out. He says, if anyone, this is Luke 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, he's like, if you're going to put me at the top of the love order here, which is the only place I accept, like, this is where I go. Here's what that looks like. Here's what it requires He says, let him first, this person, deny himself. It speaks of a one-time decision in which you finally go, you know what? This is it. (laughs) Jesus, everything else. I'm going all in on him. I might not even know what that means. I just know that's what I'm called to. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going all in on him. If anyone would come after me, if you're going to put me at the top of the love list, good. But no, it requires this. Let him first deny himself, make that commitment, and then take up his cross. It's the language of death daily, every single day. And follow me, to which he adds, for whoever would save his life, meaning the life that he would live, if he was left to live it according to his passions and desires. Whoever would save his life in that sense will lose it in the end when he dies and enters into eternity and leaves it all behind. But whoever loses his life for my sake, that is to say whoever makes the call, goes all in on me and then reaffirms that every day by crucifying his passions and desires in favor of what I would have him to do out of love. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it in the end when he dies and enters into eternity. And then he says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, guys, so here's the deal. If you live for yourself and you find your identity in the things of this world, that's why you matter. It's your job. It's this relationship. It's whatever it is. Then in the end, when you die, what do you lose? Everything, including yourself. But if you live for me, if you find your identity in me, then in the end, when you die, you lose nothing. You gain everything you live for, on the other hand. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, God doesn't ask you for anything that you're not already guaranteed to lose on your own. It's brilliant, right? Jesus is right. Keller is right. It makes perfect sense. Like the logic is impeccable, but it's not enough. Why? Because logic is a matter of the mind. And obedience is a matter of the heart. That's why Jesus comes to us and he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He doesn't come to us and say, listen, if my commandments make a lot of sense to your mind, you'll do it. 
Hey, if I can rationally defend this to you, then you're in. If this makes sense and you see how you're going to benefit and all of this kind of, you know, the dominoes fall into place, then for you intellectually, you're going all in and then, no, no, he's like, that's not enough. No, no, if you love me, you're going to go work in the yard because you'll want to. It will please you because what's really what you're doing is is you're trying to please me and, and you want to please the people that you love. You get the idea? You're not going to die to people and things out here that you love more than Jesus and here is the point. And so what we need to work on is not who, what we do so much as who we love. Thomas Chalmers, who was a great mid-19th century Scottish preacher, said it this way, and I love this. He says, the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object even more beautiful. Boom. Like, okay, let's pray. Like, you know, I mean, that's it. Sin and temptation are not defeated by grit, determination, resolve, etc. They're defeated by a greater love. They're defeated by a greater love. Sin is disordered love. Love God, do whatever you please. It's a good maxim. He's right. Because what you love in here determines what you do out here, what you say out here, the attitudes you show out here. Changes everything. And so the call of the message is to be filled with the love of Christ. And we're responsive people. In response to that, to be filled with a love for Christ. So I close with a couple of questions and we're done. So who or what do you love most right now? You don't have to like write it on a piece of paper and turn it in. Don't say it out loud. <laughs> and we all vacillate, do we not? And that's, there's grace for that. There's forgiveness for that. But there is a callback in repentance for that. There's a moment in which we go, okay, I own this. This is what I love. And it ain't Jesus. And I need to turn from that. It may be a good thing. But it's not a good thing if it's displaced him as your God. Secondly, what are you doing to cultivate your love for Jesus? Okay, I'm not going to lie. That's why I started with personal worship and corporate worship and podcast and join a group and all of that stuff. Why? Because this is where behavior actually does matter. God comes and he fills us with his spirit and he gives us his word and he's like, participate with me, for example, in what it is that I want to do in forming and shaping Jesus in your heart and increasing your faith in him in exponentially increasing your love and appreciation for him. I want to show you the beauty of Christ. And then we leave it on a shelf and we wonder why in here we feel dead. He's like, no, no, no. Join me. Let this word become life to you. Let prayer become something like breathing to you. He invites us into the very process by which he forms and shapes and then transforms our own hearts and increases a love for Jesus in us such that, you know, we go out and work in the yard, so to speak. Because, oddly enough, we want to. What are you doing to cultivate your love for Jesus? And then lastly, out of love for Jesus, who or what do you need to die to right now? You know, what's remarkable about Christ is when you come to him, I said this a couple of weeks ago, he's like, I'm right here. He doesn't chastise you. He doesn't put you down. He doesn't punish you. 
He took that for you on the cross. It's the whole idea that you might freely know him and freely enter into his presence and know and experience the love of the most beautiful person, object, thing in the entirety of the universe. And when that beauty fills you up, things get reordered. So what do you need to die to now? Bring that before the Lord and he will be gracious to forgive and to give you a better God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, for your word, uh, your word that we find in the Bible and your word who is the living Jesus himself. We praise you. God, that when we come to you in repentance, when we come to you in faith, when we come to you broken and we are, that your disposition is to forgive, that your disposition is to embrace, that your disposition is to heal, that your disposition is to renew, that no matter how many times we fall, you lend a hand and you lift us back up. Reorder our loves. Give us hearts for you. Make your word to come alive when we open it when we hear it, when we come to it. Lord, reshape and reform us that we might gladly give to you our lives, daily die to our own desires because they're nothing and know the joy of walking through this life with you. Reorder our loves, forgive our sin, O God, and spirit of the living God, rise up and empower our surrender, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.